This is a story of faith and compromise, of hope and disillusionment, of a God looked for but hidden. This is an ancient story of a time two and a half thousand years ago, and a world ruled by the God Emperor, Xerxes. Yet this is a story that speaks directly to our world today. It's a story of a man called to follow the true God, yet defined by a false one, and of a woman struggling to reconcile two competing identities. This is their story. This is our story. Fantastic. It is the final part of Esther. And if you've been following the story, Esther is a story of people in exile. It's how you do faith when the prevailing culture that you're part of wants you to do what you do, but do it privately, to have it in your back pocket, to not let it be defining of you. Now, we have these three characters, just to bring you back up to speed. We've got Esther, who is a, a Jewish woman who finds herself carried away into captivity, and she's the girl with two names. So we know her as Esther, but Esther's a pagan name, named after a pagan goddess. Her Jewish name, given to her by her parents most probably, is Hadassah. And it has a wordplay that means hidden, that God is hidden. And how do you do faith when you're trying to hold on to an identity of faith in the face of opposition and uh, subjugation? And then we've got Xerxes, who is this great guy. He's the guy from 300. He's a famous despot emperor, a god emperor from uh, 2,500 years ago when the story is set. It's uh, Susa, which is his palace city, which is in modern-day Iran. And he has total power over the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. And then we looked at Mordecai. We particularly focused on Mordecai last week because Mordecai is this kind of guy who, again, his name, his whole identity is, is a pagan god name. It's an idolatrous name. And he finds himself as someone that has a Jewish heritage but no real living practice. We saw last week how he began to have this kind of spiritual awakening where even though he didn't have much integrity in his faith, he began to take it seriously and do the God thing anyway. We talked about the fact that when you are in exile, these guys are literally the grandchildren of exile. When you're in exile, you're tempted to do two things. One, you can go for assimilation, where you're basically just like everybody else. You go with the flow. So with us, we can be cultural Christians, but functional atheists. So we have a Christian belief, but it's a private one. You know, our culture tells us, have your faith, but make it a little part of who you are. Don't let it define you, and don't let it rock the boat. You can't tell people that this is the way to live. You just have to keep it on the down low. And assimilation means we behave like them, we speak like them, we have the same values, the same aspirations, the same context. But isolation is the other extreme. It's where you try and just hold on and preserve your faith, preserve your identity. You don't engage at all with the culture that you're a part of. And assimilation is a failure to trust God. Isolation is a failure to love your neighbor. And what God gives in the blueprint that he gives 
from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, it's not assimilation, it's not isolation, it's transformation. You know, I'm looking for those that will enter into, be distinct and different from the culture, and so transform it. I don't want you to isolate yourself from it. I want you to engage with your culture, but I want you to do so in such a way that you are seeking the peace of the city. You're praying for the prosperity of the city. You're actively working for the city in which you are based, even though it's godless, And even though it's carried you off and it's imposing its will upon you, actually you have unique power to work within the system. And so this is what happens with Mordecai. He gets into this frame of mind where he starts to have this spiritual awakening, this coming alive on the inside, begins to do the God thing anyway. And actually it lands him in hot water. He finds himself in direct competition with the king's new hard man, Haman. Now, Haman is a kind of historic enemy. His people have been enemies with God's people for centuries. And Haman comes up with this plan to not just destroy Mordecai, but to eradicate the whole nation of the Jews right across the empire, in the promised land, in every nook and cranny of this Persian empire. So what Mordecai does is that he absolutely mourns and weeps and wails before God. The Bible says that he takes his clothes and he rips his clothes. Now, for us, that A, it sounds bizarre. B, it sounds inappropriate. But in the culture that you're in, the clothes were very often the most precious thing that you owned. And uh, they would be very hard, very expensive, very hard to replace. And so ripping your clothes is an act of self-destruction. It's a bit like taking the keys to your Bentley and keying your own luxury car or ramming it into a brick wall again and again. It's like this shocking thing. And he goes and he gets dust and ash and he pours them all over his head so that he looks like this ghostly figure who's already haunting the capital of Susa. And uh, eventually, word comes to Esther, who's become part of the king's harem and now become the queen. And she hears about what's happened to Mordecai, how he's ripped his clothes, how he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, how he's sat in despair and wailing at the edge of the king's gate. And she sends her guys to go and talk to him to see what's going on. It says this, when Esther's eunuchs And female attendants came and told her about Mordecai. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for his people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. 
So you're asking me to do something and there's only one outcome from this. There's only one consequence. There's only one law. That they be put to death. It's a death sentence. You're asking me to do something that's going to get me killed. There's only one way out. It says that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So what's happening here is that this woman, Esther, who's become the queen of Persia, her life and her experience is so insulated from what is happening with everybody else. She doesn't even know that her own people have been set for destruction, for annihilation. She's unaware of what's going on at street level. She's pampered. She's cloistered. She is completely insulated from what's going on in real life. The richer that you get, the more power that you get, the harder it is to see what's happening with the poor and with people on the ground. And that's what's happened to Esther in an extreme way. And Mordecai says, look, you're queen. You can go to Xerxes. You can tell him what's going on. He doesn't really want the Jews to be uh, annihilated. He doesn't want this Holocaust. He's just going along with what Haman wants. But if he knew your situation, if he knew your Jewishness, because she's kept herself hidden. No one knows she's a Jew. She's got a Persian name, Persian accent, speaks Persian, and she totally passes. No one absolutely knows. But Mordecai says, Tell them, tell them who you really are. And then we'll see salvation coming for the Jews. But she explains, look, you can't just go in. One does not simply walk into Mordor. You can't just go to King Xerxes. You can't just force your way in. Because that's an ultimate, immediate, automatic death sentence. Unless he decides to spare you, you've already written your own death warrant. And then what happens is that Mordecai responds to her. They're they're just kind of conversing via messenger. It's like eunuch mail. And uh, he says, look, this is something that you need to know. And what Mordecai says, I don't know how he got to this place. Because there's nothing in his past up to this point that leads us to expect that he will have this kind of a revelation. But what he does, it, it really unlocks the whole book of Esther. Because he speaks to us about the way that God moves in situations where we can't find him. How many of you here, don't put your hands up. How many of you at home, online, don't comment. How many of you feel like God is missing? How many of you feel like God's gone AWOL? That he's absent without leave? That he's not present for you? How many of you feel that you used to have an easier time of your faith? You used to have an easier time. That church doesn't necessarily feel the same. That your private personal life with God doesn't necessarily, you don't even know. You're kind of hanging on in there because it's almost like a force of habit. Or you just deeply know that it's all real. And so you've got no real choice to stick it out. But we feel like we can't really see God moving. We can't really see God working. And Mordecai says, whenever you're in this situation, there's something that you need to know. And so he spells it out to, more, uh, to Esther. And this is so key, so important, so pertinent for us to know that if you can get this one thing, then this whole message tonight will make sense to you. He says this, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, 
relief, and here it comes, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise. Everyone say, will arise. arise. Someone write it in the comments, will arise. It will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And what Mordecai somehow has, has stumbled upon, or he's rediscovered it, he's got back in touch with his ancient faith. He's come across something which we, when we talk theologically, we call providence. Providence means that God has a way of working behind the scenes. Providence is literally from two Latin words. Pro, which means before, ahead of time. And video, which means I see. And it says that God sees things ahead of time. Before you even had the problem, God saw it coming. Before you even encountered your difficulty, God could see that on the horizon. Before you even sought to cry out to him or pray to him or look to him, He'd already seen it, already taken it into account. That God has this incredible, powerful way, this wise, infinitely capable way of seeing down the corridors of time and being able to work out what's going to happen and what needs to happen. And that he's going to do something to save the Jews. And Mordecai isn't of the mindset that, listen, Esther, if you don't do this, we are done. He's come to this place of confidence and faith in God and it's so weird because if you look at Mordecai you see this guy who's who's covered his his face in in ash and dust who's wearing this hairy thick rough hard sackcloth uh, dress and yet in the midst of his weakness and his crying and his pain and his brokenness he still has that deep inner conviction God's going to save us God's not going to abandon us God's going to work it out. And if he doesn't use Esther, he'll use someone else. But he's saying, Esther, you can actually be part of God's way of saving us. But he's already promised and he's already found ways. If it isn't through you, it'll be through something else. And it isn't through that thing, then it'll be through another thing again. And I think, again, it's the words of the prophet Jeremiah that are resonating for Mordecai. Jeremiah gives God's blueprint. This is how you do exile. This is how you do faith in a faithless culture. Jeremiah says you you pray for the prosperity of the city. You seek its peace. And then Jeremiah 29 verse 11, one of the most famous verses that we know, it says this. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Put your hands up if you've heard that verse before. Okay, a lot of people, most of us. And if you were here last week, you definitely heard it before. But here's the problem with this verse. It's often misinterpreted, misquoted, and misunderstood. And so what I want to do right now is I want to disabuse you of any false notions about that verse and how it pertains to you. So listen to me really carefully. Lean in. You need to hear this. God does not have a plan for your life. God does not have a plan for your life. Turn to the person next to you and say, God does not have a plan for your life. 
Someone write it in the comments. Okay, now turn, look at me, and repeat after me. God does not have a plan for my life. Everyone together. Okay, you feeling encouraged? Glad you came out tonight? Yeah, that's why we love the book of Esther, because it underlines the fact that God does not have a plan for your life. Deal with it. He does not have a plan for your life. That's not what Jeremiah 29 says. What Jeremiah 29 says is that God has plans, plural. But it's an important distinction. You know, sometimes you have this thing, and when I was a kid, I, was, I grew up, and I, I felt like God has a plan for my life. And it was part encouraging, borderline terrifying. Because if you feel that God has a single, solitary plan for your life, you're always worried that you're going to drop off the edge of it. You're always worried that somehow you're going to mess up and miss God's plan for your life. Or you're always worried that you have no determinism, no free will, no agency. Or you become passive. You just think, well, whatever happens is God's will. Fall down the stairs, you think, well, thank God that's over with now. You know, everything is about God's will, God's plan, and you have no wriggle room, you have no parts to play. And if you fail, if you fall, then you think, well, I must have messed up God's plan for my life. You know, you get into a, a bad relationship and uh, you, you, you come to the conclusion, oh my goodness, I think I've messed up. I, th- I think I've spoiled God's plan for my life. I think I've gone too far. This, this can't be it. This can't be what God wanted for me. And when we have this idea that God has a single solitary plan, it's so easy to either be passive or to be afraid or to worry that you've messed up and who can keep to God's plan. And then worst of all, it means that if God has a plan for you, everything that happens in your life is part of God's plan. So sometimes well-meaning people will say awful things. You lose someone very dirty someone that you love, someone that is taken too soon. And someone will say, well, it's all part of God's gracious plan. You know, his riches, they are beyond fathoming. His ways are mysterious. It's all part of the plan. Or your university, you know, there are some of you, you're watching online because you couldn't stay in Bristol because you just, it did not work out. And someone will say, well, you know, it was God's plan. What, it was God's plan for you to have uh, such anxiety? God's plan for you to have such problems with your mental health. God's plan for you to struggle so badly, to have so much pain. And what, what Jeremiah says and what Mordecai picks up is that the providence of God is that God has plans, plural, for us. I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. They're plans. And when one plan goes wrong because you mess it up, because you're weak, because you fail, because you don't do what I wanted you to do in the first place, I'll make another plan. It wasn't God's plan for the Israelites to be in captivity to the Persian Empire in the first place. That was not God's perfect plan. But while they're in it, the providence of God says, do you know what? I could see this coming. This was one of the, one of the infinite number of possibilities, the way it could have played out. But because I'm God, I've got an infinite capacity to work through an infinite number of plans so that no matter where you are, whenever you reach out and trust in me, if you allow me to move, I've got a plan. And when that doesn't work, amen. When that doesn't work, or when you lose that one, God's sat nav goes recalibrating and he gets us another 
plan. Okay, well, there's a hold up here. Fine, I'll get another plan. That's what Mordecai is saying. He's saying God has plans for us. Now, he says, if you don't come on board, you, you just seem adequately, incredibly, sovereignly placed. I mean, you are literally the queen. Who knows, he says. I don't know. I I don't try and unpick God's plan. I don't get super spiritual about it. But hey, it kind of makes sense that you're queen for such time as this. And and maybe that's part of of God's doing. Maybe that's his providence. Maybe he saw that ahead of time. Five years ago, when you were put into this position, it wasn't great. But part of that could be that God saw this possibility coming. He's given you leverage. He says, I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? Possibly. But if you don't play, and if you don't engage, and if you don't get alongside what God is doing, he'll do something else. He'll use someone else. What I love about the way that Esther speaks about God's plans and purposes, his providence for us, is that it gives me the option to opt in. It's not like God's got a monolithic plan and maybe I miss it and I fall out of it. It's like God is always working. He wants to give us a future. That's the one thing that God has for you. In fact, if you wanted to rewind and have a better thing to say out loud, say, God has a future for me. God has hope for me. But he's many plans in order to make that happen. But what Mordecai says to us is he says, look, God is working in this world. He may seem hidden, but he's not absent. And you have an opportunity, you have a, a, a moment, a window where you can buy into God's plans. You know, God has plans for Bristol. Amen? amen. Oh, I love that amen. That's the best amen I've had all day. God has plans for Bristol. And I want to say, I want to be in on those plans. I want to be in on that. I want to push myself into the grace and the mercy of God. And so this is what Esther said. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Again, this spiritual awakening that's happened with Mordecai is started to infect his young cousin that he's brought up since she was an orphan child. And she, again, I'm going to do the God thing anyway. And this is so, so key. There's two things that we need to do once we have an idea of God's providence. First of all, we trust God's power. We trust God's power, even if it feels like he's far off, even if it feels like our prayers are not being answered. Still, I trust God's power. In fact, faith becomes alive when it is most challenged. You know, when you're going through difficulties, when you're going through hardships and sufferings, these are ways in which your faith gets really strong, really, really proved. So for those of you that are struggling and having challenges and having a difficult time right now, this is a good time to grow in your trust of your Father in heaven. You trust in God's power. But the second thing is, I embrace my weakness. It's not that I feel like, yeah, God's on my side, therefore I'm going to go in and I've got incredible power and and I'm just going to storm into Xerxes' kingdom palace into the throne room and I'm just going to do my thing. She doesn't say that. She says, we need to approach this with weakness. Do you know, as a church right now, 
I feel like we are weak. Metro, you're weak. Everyone say amen. amen. We're weak and it's a good thing. We're weak and we always have been weak. It's just that now we see how weak we are. You know, I, I, I'm so aware of my own shortcomings, my own failures, my own paucity of vision and, and godliness and Christ-likeness. I'm weak. But instead of trying to G up some kind of false strength, I embrace my weakness. As Paul said, I rejoice in my weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient for me. And so Esther goes before the king in weakness. She puts herself in harm's way. My, um, my mum and dad, they have planted churches. When I was a kid, we planted our first church as a family in Nigeria. And uh, that church has grown and then it's exported itself across the world so that now I think, well, the last time I spoke to my parents about this, they said 33 nations. But um, only yesterday it was 22 nations. So by now it's probably on Mars. But there are, there, my parents have got churches all over the shop. And uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, but they've got this one particular church in Qatar. And uh, in Qatar, they're in a, a kind of a similar situation where you have certain laws that preclude you from worshipping God freely. So the Qatari government, they basically said there's going to be two official churches that can meet. The Catholics and the Anglicans, the Church of England. Everyone else, you're not allowed. And so because the church is the people of God, it doesn't matter what stripe or tribe you're part of. We're all God's family together. They, they, the other churches, they, uh, the Catholics, the Anglicans, they opened their doors to all the other churches. And so on a Sunday, any given Sunday, you could have 12, 13, 14 different churches meeting, say, in the, 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 the Catholic compound. So my dad's church would be there. You know, it's kind of like a, a full-on African church, gospel, choir, drums, and uh, they get raided by the uh, the Qatari cops and uh, all these Africans are doing it's gospel choir we're all good Catholics here we love the Pope and look it's it's gospel style uh, Catholics and uh, you know we're all good all good brothers here nominee Patri Filius and uh, you know just having to find ways another thing that they did is that they would meet but they would meet in, in meeting places, uh, but they would do it in such a way that if and when they got raided, they would be fine. And so what they did, and I'm thinking about this for Metro actually, is that they would have everyone sat down at tables, like in part wearing party hats, and they've got drinks and food, and then the preacher is sitting at a table, and uh, you know they, they're just speaking like it's a party. And if someone comes and raids them, they say, nothing to see here, officer. And they would always be scrupulously honest. They would say, we are here to celebrate someone that we really love. Oh, it's a birthday party. Yeah, I suppose you could call a carol service that, but yes. Um, and so that was how they had to live. The one guy, he's the leader of the church, and he has this Esther moment. Because the World Cup being held in Qatar next year, the government go, uh, public, and they say, Qatar's great, freedom of religion. And my dad's pastor's thinking, not where I sit. And so it just so happens, providence of God, that he has a friend who has a friend who is a government minister, high up government minister. Now, this 
church leader, this pastor, he's had to submit his passport. The reason that the government take your passport when you come in as an immigrant, and he's there officially as a teacher, is that if they find that you're doing any naughty, funky business, like leading a church, they can take you straight to the airport, bundle you on your plane, they've got the passport, they give it straight to you, you don't even have time to pack, you don't get to say goodbye to your family, you're on the train, on the plane, and you're out. Train, plane, whatever, you're out. And so this guy, he goes in weakness. He gets a meeting. He says to his friend, get me in the room. He goes to a meeting with the government official. And he says, full disclosure, I'm a pastor of a church. You can deport me if you will. But you did say publicly that you are a country that allows freedom of religion. So I'm now here telling you that I am that guy. What are you going to do about it? And the guy looks at him and he says, we've got the Catholics, we allow them. We've got the Anglicans, we allow them. He gets out a piece of paper, official stationery. He writes something down, signs his name. And he says, and now we allow you. So in the whole of Qatar, there's only three churches, the Catholics, the Anglicans, and my dad's church, my dad and mum's church. And now they're doing the same thing for everybody else. And so I think there's a whole bunch of Franciscan monks that meet in their venue, and they are like, yes, we're all gospel Africans together. And uh, they're able to just see the church thriving because they can now meet without fear of repercussions. And that's what happens with Esther. She goes before the king. She risks everything. But then the weird thing is this. Even though she goes before the king, and instead of allowing her to be dragged out by the guards and beheaded, the king sees her, and he points his scepter towards her. She's been fasting for three days. She's gone in weakness, in uh, just absolute vulnerability. And he moves the scepter towards her. Now, this is her point. This is the moment where she's supposed to say, Mordecai, Mordecai's like debriefing with her afterwards. He said, you had one job, literally one job. You ask him to rescind the edict. You ask him to, to not let the Jews be annihilated. What did she do? She said, husband of mine, this is my request. Would you come and have a banquet with me and bring Haman, your attack dog? You asked him for a banquet? Yeah, I asked him for a banquet. And she does a banquet there and then for Haman and for the king. And then at the banquet, he says, what do you want? And she again, she bottles it. She loses her courage. And she says, I want you to come to another banquet tomorrow. I'll tell you at that banquet. Honestly, do you ever feel like you want to do the right thing, like you get to share your faith or tell your story or an opportunity arises at work or in the common room. And it's like, I know I should be doing this, but you just feel too frightened or you feel too embarrassed or you feel too inadequate or you think you're going to mess it up. That's what happens with Esther. She like has this, this opportunity to do something and she, she fluffs her lines. She, she just says, she keeps pushing it off, banquet after banquet. What are you going to carry on doing? Just, uh, just serial banquet crawl for all eternity until the Jews are wiped out. And what happens is it has an awful and unintended consequence. Haman goes away from this banquet, unexpected banquet. He's like, wow, I got to be in a banquet on my own with Xerxes and the queen. I am so great. 
And then he comes out full of himself, emboldened. He sees Haman, who's doing the sackcloth, ash on his head, looking at him, not bowing down. And it sends Haman into a murderous rage. And he goes and he reports it back to his family. This is what happens. It says, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him. Now he elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, it's about 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So it's like worse. And Mordecai, he doesn't know about this, but if he did, he'd be so mad. He'd be like, why on earth did I ask Esther. You know, Esther tries to get into God's plan, tries to do the right thing, totally messes it up. Now Mordecai is going to be executed in the morning. Fine, have your banquet in the evening. He'll be dead by then. Then are you happy with what you've achieved? But this is exactly where we see providence working. We see God's ability to foresee every opportunity and every obstacle and every outcome And you get this next verse, which for me is one of the best verses in the whole book. It says this, verse 1, chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. It's like God is watching all of this unfolding. And he, Esther, what are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, honestly, never mind. Let's enact the caffeine plan. And somehow... He gets Xerxes to to drink too much coffee and the guy cannot sleep that night. He's had a double espresso and he's buzzing and wired. And in this, God is working. And so Xerxes can't sleep and he decides to just, oh, I'll do my favorite thing. I'll have people tell me how great I am. So he gets some eunuchs to read from the chronicles of his reign, stuff that's happened. And then what happens is that they read about the assassination attempt, the, the coup that was foiled by Mordecai. And he says, hey, what happened to that guy? Did we do anything for him? And all the officials say, nah, just did nothing. And so Xerxes says, we should do something for that guy. I'm going to ask Haman, my favorite uh, advisor, what we should do for him. So Haman comes in the next morning, says, uh, my Lord, I've got something to discuss with you. And Xerxes says, yeah, me too. I think we're on the same page here. Uh, What should we do for the person that I really want to honor? And Haman's feeling like, oh, this is going from great to better to amazing. And so Haman says, well, you should put him on your horse, dress him in one of your clothes, and then have your favorite courtier, highest courtier, leading them through the entire city, proclaiming to their own entire city, this is, what God will, this is what Xerxes the king will do to the man that he honors. And Xerxes then says, that's a great idea. So could you do that for Mordecai? And what was it that you wanted to talk to me about? And Haman has the very worst day of his life. I mean, it is brutal. He, he has to just wait upon his mortal enemy, Mordecai, as he's clothed in the king's robe and all the dust has got out of his hair. He's put on the horse. And it's Haman himself who has to go, this is what happens to the man that the king honors. 
And then Haman gets to the end of the day and says, oh, I could just die, which is exactly what happens. Uh, they have this banquet, and Esther, Haman, Xerxes, uh, Xerxes says, so what, what was it, my love? What did you want to um, ask of me? And she says, I want you to spare my life. What? He says, yeah, I've been marked for annihilation. What? Yeah, my whole race, my whole people. And then suddenly Haman goes like, oh, no. <laughs> he gets it. She's a Jew. And then Xerxes says, who's ordered this? And this is what happens. King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who's dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Haman gives a little girly scream. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine. That's how angry he was. I'm going to leave my wine. I'm mad. And went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the, so he's falling on her. She's reclining in a couch. It's not a good look. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. A bunch of guys come in, put a little blanket over him. Then Harbona one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. It's like, just like that, all the unicorns, all the unicorns? <laughs> all the unicorns left him. Uh, all the eunuchs turned on Haman. You know, when the eunuchs, when the eunuchs, I'm just not used to saying eunuch in a normal sentence. When the eunuchs desert you, you know it's not going to end well. And Haman is impaled. And his plan is thwarted. And actually Mordecai, Xerxes says, yeah, Piers, I've got an opening for a grand vizier. Would you like to be my second in charge? And Mordecai becomes the greatest in the empire. And they institute this whole new feast and festival for the Jewish people. And it's a testimony that God is real. God is on their side. And this is what I want us to get to. We've kind of, there's so much in the book, you really need to go read it uh, yourself and find yourself in this story. But at the end of it, what we want to do is we want to pray because this is a story about a God who seems hidden and yet is not absent. And how God works, his ways are wonderful. They are mysterious, but mysterious in the sense of awesome, incredible, unbelievable, so powerful that he can work all these things together for the good of those that love him, that God is able to do things even no matter how hard a situation we get ourselves into, that God can thread things together. He has providence. He has power. He has wisdom. I can embrace my weakness. I want to pray for all of us that feel weak right now. I want to pray for us when we feel like God has gone missing, that he's absent or that we don't exactly see where this is going. And I want you to hear from me and hear from scripture. God has future for you. He does not have a plan for your life. He has many plans for your life. It's even better than you thought. 
Ways in which he can give you a future and give you a hope. And if you feel weak, you're not disqualified, you're qualified. Qualified for what God has for you. So I'm going to ask that we pray right now. I'm going to invite the band to come up.